up again for our afternoon session. Make sure you have enough caffeine to keep you going and um, detox. That's that's because uh, uh, our next speaker has no sense of humor. <laughs> he speaks in a monotone, barely loud enough for anybody to hear. And we, we say this every year, we need to get together more often. We, we need to do that because we, we can encourage each other. And I'm going to have to bring you do your beard. <laughs> so we're going to have to meet halfway. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Once again, if you didn't get the announcement, I th- I'm afraid we're, we, we had a lot of people who were here the last hour and they're gone now. Um, again, I want to remind you, if you did not hear the announcement, that, that we got Bill, Bill Katz's books uh, put out before we got the prices put out. And people went back there and the books all disappeared and there wasn't any money. So we need to, if you picked up one of his books, for each book, it's $13. So if you would take the time now, before, I don't, I'm not sure when Bill's going to go, but we'll continue, Cheryl. Remind me, we'll make the announcement again tonight so people are back, and we'll make it again tomorrow. We can collect money for him and then uh, send that to him. So uh, he'll, be, he'll be taken care of. We wouldn't want, uh, want him to miss out. Okay. Uh, I don't know of any announcements. One thing that... Uh, uh, Bryce, who's my uh, webmaster guru, waves his magic wand, and who knows what happens. Um, Bryce said we have, during the daytime, we're having at least 60 people logging on to live stream throughout all of the sessions. Plus, at night, we have uh, an additional 120-plus besides the people that are here. So we've got last night we had about 150 people here plus another 120 live streaming. So... Uh, that just counts the people who, a lot of people don't live in the right time zone. I mean, if you live in California, it, it's pretty early to catch the evening session. So if you live in uh, England or Israel or uh, somewhere in the Kamchatka Peninsula, then you're, you're just going to be out of luck. So anyhow, um, our next speaker is Bruce Baker. And uh, Bruce uh, was in the, you were in the Navy for over 11 years? All right. And um, he went to Calvary Theological Seminary, and he's uh, working on finishing his Ph.D. from Baptist Bible Seminary. And I say that because he's mailing in the last chapter of his dissertation. Imminent. It's imminent. (laughs) And soon coming. And it's on Darby, right? No, it's on dispensationalism, though. So dispensationalism and social ethics. So anyway, he is uh, uh, the pastor at uh, Washington County Bible Church, which is out in Brenham, and he's also assistant professor of Bible and theology at Grace School of Theology here. No longer. Okay, he's not doing that anymore. And uh, anyway, we, he's spoken here a couple of times before. I first met him a few years ago up at Baptist Bible Seminary uh, where he gave a, a, a great presentation up there. And ever since then, I've included him in what we're doing here. And it's always been a, been a tremendous a tremendous benefit. So uh, welcome, Bruce. And, Bruce, uh, why don't you open in prayer before you start? Do you need a stool to sit on? I'm good right now. You're good right now? Okay. There is none good, no, not one. Yes, it's true. But I am forgiven. 
Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. There, we're on now. Okay, good. All right. Let's, uh, uh, before we open in prayer, I'm asking that you'll follow me as I follow Christ and that you'll take your phone and you'll turn it off right now. Okay, notice what I am doing. Okay, what I'm trying to do. There we go. I am taking my phone and I am turning it off. Every session so far, one person has had their phone ring. And um, if you, after this admonition to walk in the Spirit, if your phone rings, I will throw my cane at you, okay? And, and I'm really a bad shot, so if you're sitting next to somebody that's being disobedient, you might want to take this for action, okay? All right, good. <laughs> All right, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, as we gather around uh, your word, looking at the grand plan for the ages that you have revealed, help us to be clear and to understand so that uh, we would have a better appreciation that this world is not out of control, but is moving toward an end, a glorious end where you will be praised. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, every year I get invited back, and every year when I leave, I keep thinking to myself, I'm walking out the door, they're never going to call me back again. So I appreciate uh, uh, the grace and forgiveness that I always get while I'm here. The topic for this session is, what on earth is God doing? Or as it's printed in your uh, program, what in the world is God doing? I wrote both of those titles and evidently couldn't decide on one. So, But the, the point is the same. Is there a plan for this earth? This earth looks like it's out of control. It looks like things are just falling apart and that there's no plan, there's no rhyme, there's no reason. Where are we going? And so that's what I want us to do. And what I've done is I've made uh, a uh, time chart of the uh, entire Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And really, that's pretty clear right there. So if you just copy that down, we'll go to questions. (laughs) Um, well, maybe not. So I'll tell you what, let's go to the first part of that, the creation of the world. We already saw that. God saw it all that he had made, and it was very good. And what we want to look at here is not just the creation of the world, but the creation of man. We see this in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and following. Then God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now you will recognize that this is talking about the creation of man and central to this conversation is the image of God. Sometimes it's called the Imago Dei if you want to read into the literature. The Imago Dei or the image of God is one of those topics that if you look in 11 different theologies you're going to get 13 different answers as to what it is. All right, And the reason for that is that there is no formal definition given. We aren't told in the text what is meant by the image of God. Now, I suggest that in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, it should not be that man, God, man was created 
in the image of God, but rather it's just as easily translated that man is created as the image of God. And there is a distinction between those two because the image of God doesn't describe what man is like. It describes what he is to be and to do. In other words, it's not that we look like God or somehow we reflect his image, but rather that God made us as his image in order to fulfill some task. We see this in the text in Genesis 1:26b and 28, let them rule and subdue. And so we come to the conclusion that man is God's steward over the earth. In other words, God owns the world, God owns everything in it, but he has chosen to rule the world through man. In other words, man is God's vice regent, and in the plan of God, he is the one who rules under God and in God's stead. We see this, for instance, in Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? the son of man that you care for him. You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and all that swim the paths of the seas. So God's original plan was to have the world ruled by man in his stead. And interestingly, because this is repeated in the Psalms, there's no evidence that this plan has ever changed. It is still God's plan to rule this world through man. Now, to help us with this picture a little bit, I want you to remember uh, this event. You remember this, right? This was uh, during the fall of Iraq, and they were pulling down the statue of Saddam Hussein, or we might say the image of Saddam. And Saddam had made over all over Iraq statues of himself just to remind everybody that he was the ruler. If you go to the former uh, Soviet Union, you go to Russia, at least when I was there, it might be different now, but when I was there, every town had a square and in that square there was a statue of Lenin. Okay? So what God has done is to show his ownership of the world, he has placed his image all over this world to show that this world is governed by him because his image is everywhere. And yet he is not ruling it directly, but he is ruling it through man. Well, we've seen the creation of the world. Let's go to the next major event, and that is the fall of man. And I'm not catching up here for some reason or another. That's all right. The fall of man, we see it there in uh, Genesis that they uh, ate of the tree. Now, let's look at the results of the fall. First, of course, there was death. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. By the way, that's the best translation in the day that you eat of it. A lot of English translations try and keep that word day out of there just because it sounds odd and we want to make it very, very readable. But it's very important to have it in there because remember what happened? They ate of the of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and it was in the cool of the day, that day, that God walked and said, where are you? 
What is this you have done? In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And of course that happened. And man received a sinful nature. That meant that every part of man was corrupted by sin. That's what total depravity means. Total depravity doesn't mean just that every person is depraved, but it means that every part of every person is corrupted by sin. And you know that, don't you? You look at your own life and you know that's true. That's part of the fall. And the problem is, because of that, we now worship and serve the creature, the created thing, rather than the creator. And because we worship and serve the created thing rather than the creator, we no longer act as God intended us to act. We see the part of the result of this when we go to Luke 4. The devil took him to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor or all their authority and glory. For it's been given to me and I can give it to anybody I want to. So if you worship me, It'll all be yours. Now, interesting in this offer is the fact that Jesus does not contradict him. He doesn't say, hey, it's not all yours. No, don't you understand? It all belongs to my father. And by the way, he's the one that divvies it up and so forth and so on. No. Jesus just responds to the author by saying no. And then quoting out of Deuteronomy. Some people think that when the fall took place, there was a transfer that took place. And that the title deed of this earth, which was given to man, was now transferred to the devil. And that's why the devil could make this offer. It's been given to me. And I can give it to anybody that I will. And I've heard this in a lot of good Bible-believing churches, and I'm not saying it's a ridiculous theory, but I do think that the evidence points in a different direction. Let's look at some descriptions of Satan for just a moment. He is the God of this age, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.4, that the whole world is under the control of the evil one in 1 John 5. By the way, The whole world lies in the evil one or lies in the lap of the evil one. The picture that I have in my mind is of a cat that's curled up in the lap and it purrs while the devil strokes it. That's the relationship between the world and the devil. He is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. So clearly the devil exercises control over this world. I think that the biblical evidence is plain. But that doesn't mean he has the right to. When I think of the devil's relationship to this world, I think of him more like a drug lord. The drug lord controls the block. But he doesn't hold title to any of the houses, any of the apartments on the block. He doesn't have any right to control the block. But the reason he controls the block is because there's no one powerful enough to tell him no. And so in this world, we all know that might makes right. 
and that the weak get trampled by the strong, and so he holds functional control over the world system, not because he has a right to, but because he's the strongest. And because, well, we like what he offers. At least we think he do, we do. That's why in Psalm 2.2, 2, the psalmist writes, The kings of the Lord take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and his anointed one. If Jesus were to come back right now, then all the kingdoms of the world would join together, which means Iran would join with the United States. And the United States would join with China and Russia. And that France would join with England. And any nation you care to name would join with every other nation in order to oppose the rightful king of coming back and taking control. Because we worship and serve the created things rather than the creator. And the kings of this earth take their stand together against the Lord. Well, as a result of man no longer serving a power greater than himself, the world was plunged into anarchy. It truly was survival of the fittest where might makes right. And because the world had become such a dangerous place, because it had become filled with violence, God gave grace to one man and to his family. And of course, we know that that was Noah. In order to ensure the human race and preserve his ultimate plan that man would rule the world as his steward to make sure that that plan was brought to completion, God gave grace to Noah. As a result of Noah receiving grace, he was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Now, we need to read that very carefully. He didn't receive grace because he was a righteous man and blameless among the people of his time and walked with God. He was blameless and walked with God and was righteous because he received grace from God. And yet, because of the terrible condition of this world, God destroyed everything else he had made. And we really can't imagine the magnitude of this judgment or how terrible it was. I think the reason is because we're familiar with the story and we read just a little too quickly. Let's slow down and see how Moses describes it in Genesis 7. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. What a terrible judgment. Well, after the flood, to stop from the world descending into anarchy again, God delegated even more of his authority to man. 
Instead of merely ruling over the plants and the animals, now man was God's steward collectively to punish those who performed murder. In Genesis 9, 6, God says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For in the image of God, God has made man. In other words, when you attack another human being, it is an attack upon God by proxy. God says, I'm not going to allow that. Those people deserve to die. But the problem is, you see, that man's loyalties hadn't changed. While the institution of human government checked man somewhat so that the world was not filled with violence as it was before, it also encouraged the cooperation of people to act in wickedness. Now, instead of every man doing what was right in his own eyes, now they banded together to act wickedly. God commanded man to spread out over the earth, but mankind banded together. Remember Psalm 2? The kings of the earth take their stand together against the Lord and his anointed. And so they banded together to build a tower to stop what God had commanded. They said, come, let's build us ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. By the way, that name motif is very, very important. Remember in Genesis 6, there were Nephilim in the earth and they uh, had children and these people were uh, heroes of old. The NIV translates it, men of, an, men of renown. It's actually translated, they were heroes of old, men of a name. They were famous. They're so famous that we have no idea who the Nephilim were. They are completely forgotten. Here they said, let's band together and build a tower that reaches to heaven and make a name for ourselves. And God passed judgment upon them. And then we read in Genesis chapter 12, I will make you great and I'll make your name great. And everybody in three religions knows who Abraham was. Well, I digress. I do think there's quite a bit of humor here. It's been uh, mentioned before, but I'm going to mention it again. Let's make a tower that reaches to heaven. And God is up going, what? Is that, I can't see. I'm going to have to go down and look at the tower that reaches to heaven because I can't even see it. So God goes down, he confuses the languages so that, listen, human government can remain. But total cooperation between man in his rebellion can no longer exist. It can be limited. Well, due to the confusion of languages, God decides to deal with one man and his offspring to implement his plan for the ages, namely that man would rule the world in allegiance to God as his steward. And so we see the Abrahamic covenant. And of course, you'll remember the three key words in the Abrahamic covenant, land, seed or offspring and blessing. And as part of that covenant, God tells Abraham what's going to happen. The Lord said to him, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and, outward, and afterwards they will come out with great 
possessions. And you remember the story. The promise to Abraham was passed on to Isaac, which was passed on to Jacob, which was shared among his children. Joseph is sold into slavery, listen, as part of the plan of God for the saving of many lives. And the offspring of Abraham is enslaved, and yet God redeems them with a mighty arm, and he brings them out and to a special mountain, the mountain of Sinai. And here, for the first time in the Bible, we see the word kingdom as it relates to God's people. In other words, God institutes a nation through which his plan for this world is going to be accomplished. He's starting a kingdom through which he will rule the world through man. When we read the promises of what's often been called the land covenant in Deuteronomy 28, the blessings are from verses 1 through 14. And if you read that, it is very, very clear that if Israel had obeyed, the blessings that we read about in the rest of the Old Testament for the millennial kingdom would have been fulfilled in Israel. Now, I think it's interesting to take just a few minutes to pause and think about how this kingdom got started. I've been in ministry long enough to know that when I go to a parishioner's house and they have the Ten Commandments on the wall, I don't say anything. Because inevitably, it will be next to a church with a pasture and some sheep, or it'll be covered with flowers or something, and it's always so safe. But that's not the way God gave it. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it with fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. And then Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting we see later on. Now, let me go back one if I can here. Can I do that? Yes, I can. Good. When this kingdom was established, the glory of God descended upon the top of the mountain. And it's this glory of God that seems to be the key to understanding the different phases of this kingdom. This glory of God that we see descending upon the mountain is the same glory that fills the tabernacle at its dedication. They build the tabernacle, they put it together, and when it's dedicated, we read this. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The same event occurs when the temple is dedicated. 
when the priests withdrew from the holy place. The cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now, well, there's why my pants are pulling down. I'm stepping on the cord. I'm thinking, why are my britches falling down? All right. That wouldn't be good for anyone. All right. Where was I? Let me get my train of thought back after that. God has established his kingdom in the nation of Israel. But remember, God's plan was that the earth be ruled by man as his steward. And so it became clear that one man was necessary to rule as God's steward. The time of the judges basically failed. And so God says, let me get one man. And so God gave promises to his servant, David. I got that off his Facebook page, by the way. That's his Facebook picture. And you'll remember that the promises to David included a house, a throne, and a kingdom. In other words, there was a dynasty, the house, There was a throne or the right to rule and there was a kingdom or a kingdom or peoples to rule over. And yet as the kingdom became more wicked due to the sinfulness of man's heart, eventually the kingdom was divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom called Israel was in rebellion against God from its inception forward and God brought about its destruction by the nation of Assyria. But the southern king named southern kingdom named Judah had a mixture of good kings and bad kings. Ultimately, however, the kingdom became so corrupt that God decided to end it. He compared Israel and Judah to adulterous wives who chased after other lovers. So God raised up the kingdom of Babylon and a warrior named Nebuchadnezzar. But before the final judgment of Nebuchadnezzar over Jerusalem is complete, God gave a vision to the prophet Ezekiel, which is vital to our understanding of the kingdom. When we begin reading in Ezekiel 8, the vision begins. And God takes Ezekiel on a tour of the temple. He takes him into this outer area and he sees priests praying toward the sun and he walks into another area and he sees the women weeping for Tammuz and he goes into another area and he sees another adulterous idol worship and on and on everywhere you go in the temple there is idol worship and abominations before God and we see the glory of the Lord move from the ark, which is in the holy, most holy place, to the threshold of the temple. Here's what we read in Ezekiel 10. Then the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherubim and moved to the threshold of the temple. The cloud filled the temple, and the court was full of the radiance of the glory of the Lord. The sound of wings of the cherubim could be heard as far away as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. Now, you should be noticing at this point that we've seen this before. 
God descended upon Mount Sinai in glory. When the tabernacle was completed, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. When the temple was completed, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And now that it's all coming to this horrible end, one more time, the court was full of the radiance of the glory of the Lord. And when you understand what's happening here, this is a heartbreaking scene. It's like a man who has his friend. He says, come into my house. I want to show you what's going on. And he goes from room to room in the house and he points out the evidence of the adulteries of his wife, not with one person, but with many persons. You see a picture here. You see clothing there. You see a letter over here. Everywhere you go, you see evidence of the adultery. And as he moves and he's about ready to leave, he stops at the door and he turns around and he looks and he thinks of that wedding day. And all the promise that it held. And all that it should have been. And how all that's gone now. And he stops for just a moment. And then he turns and he leaves. That's what we see here. The glory of the Lord leaves from the holy place, the most holy place. It goes through to the threshold, and at the threshold He stops. And one last time, the glory of the Lord fills the temple. And then He leaves. He takes Him to the gate of the city. And then He takes Him to the mountain east of the city. And of course, we don't see the glory of the Lord leave, although it's implied by the text that from the mountain east of the city, it ascends into heaven. But I think the reason that we don't see it there is because he says, I can't bear you to watch this. I'm going to take you back to Babylon. This is too personal. And just as the glory of the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to inaugurate the kingdom, here the glory departs the Mount of Olives and the kingdom that should have been so wonderful ends. And from this time forward, we move into what is known as the time of the Gentiles. You'll remember that Nebuchadnezzar had this great dream and he saw a statue. And Daniel, it explains it to him. And briefly, we see the head of gold, which was the king of Babylon. And then we see the chest and arms of silver, the two arms showing the two kingdoms that come together in the Medes and the Persians. And the belly and the thighs of bronze, talking about Alexander's Greece. And the two legs talking about the Roman Empire and how it divided into the east and to the west. And finally, the feet of iron and clay with the ten toes talking about a kingdom that hasn't come yet. But the time of the Gentiles had arised and God made this prediction in Ezekiel 21. O profane and wicked priest, prince of Israel, 
whose day has come. The time of punishment has reached its climax. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Take off the turban. Remove the crown. It will not be as it was. The lowly will be exalted and the exalted will be brought low. A ruin. A ruin. I will make it a ruin. It will not be restored until he comes to whom it rightfully belongs. To him I will give it. In other words, take the crown off your head. There's not going to be another Davidic king in Israel until the Davidic king comes. No matter how hard you try, no matter how you scheme, no matter the rebellions, it does not matter. There is not another king that's going to wear the crown, not to the the one comes that I give it. And of course, that's been proven true. I got this map from mapsofwar.com, and it shows how the nation of Israel has changed hands, how in the kingdom of Israel, the Hittite empire to the north, And then the kingdom of Israel. And it's not here for very long. Then comes the Assyrian nation that takes away the northern kingdom. But the southern kingdom is still there until the Babylonian Empire comes. And from this time forward, as you watch, Jerusalem is trodden underfoot of the Gentiles. And while there had been different empires and different Gentiles, there's no longer a kingdom. There's the crusader kingdoms where Christians began to take Muslim theology and act upon it. Actually, that wasn't meant to be funny. Because that's what happened. The Ottoman Empire ended at the early part of the last century European colonialism came along, and then something very, very interesting happened in 1948, and that is that the nation of Israel was formed again. But what I want you to see is this. After the armistice, it gets more land, but there's still no king. There's no king. The Bible's always right. God says there's not going to be another king until the king comes. But the Bible also says that this period would not last forever. There is going to be a restoration of the previous kingdom. This restoration of the kingdom would be under a king whose kingdom would never end, who would rule righteously, who would walk in the spirit of the Lord. In other words, there will be a kingdom over which a man rules whose full allegiance is to the Lord, which was the original plan. We see this in Amos 9, for example. In that day I will restore David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its, I will repair its broken places, restore its ruin, 
and build it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountain and flow from all the hills. I will bring back my exiled people, Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Now what we need to notice here in this quotation from Amos is the constant reference to the future as an extension of the past. In other words, God is going to reestablish the kingdom as it once was. There would be a restoration of the previous kingdom. The restoration of this kingdom would be under a king whose kingdom would never end. That's certainly true. But God's plan was going to be fulfilled. The previous kingdom was going to be resurrected. The question is, when? Well, let's open our Bibles to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. And look at a parable that is often pretty well ignored, but shouldn't be. It's one of the most important parables for understanding the kingdom plan of God. Now, as we read this, I want you to be thinking to yourselves, who are the actors in this parable? Okay? Matthew 22, verse 1, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Verse 4, Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their cities, their city. Verse 8, then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now let's look at this wedding feast parable. The wedding feast is the promised kingdom. The king is the Lord. Those who have been invited are the Jews. By the way, I should mention the son is Jesus. And what I want you to notice is that there's two offers to come to the wedding banquet to those who have been invited. And one is more expansive than the other. There's the first one, it's rejected, and then one with more information, which is also rejected. The rejection of both offers results in the destruction of the city. Those who are not invited are the Gentiles. So let's see how this parable works itself out in history. Well, Jesus begins to teach 
and he gives an offer of the kingdom. He says, um, excuse me, did I miss a slide here somewhere? Evidently I did. I apologize. It's not one of my presentations if I don't do this at least twice, so this is the first. Okay, well, I guess that's the way it is. Jesus comes, he offers the kingdom. And yet, the Jews say it's by the power of Beelzebub that he drives out demons. In other words, they take the power of the Holy Spirit working itself out through Jesus and they say it's of the devil. And then Jesus says this, and this is very, very interesting. He replied... The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more and will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Listen. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Now, this is a very, very interesting passage. First of all, after Jesus issues this quote from Isaiah, he performs no more public ministries or public, uh, excuse me, miracles, public miracles. They're done. And when he speaks to the crowd, he speaks in parables. Parables are designed to reveal to the disciples, but to conceal from those that are unbelievers. I want you to stop and think for a minute. And I'm going to warn you, this is going to be a short list. What is repeated in all four Gospels? Well, there's the death and resurrection of Jesus. Okay. There is the ministry of John the baptizer, or as I like to say, John the independent Baptist. (laughs) There is the feeding of the 5,000. There's one more. Anybody know what it is? There's this quote from Isaiah. It's in all four. Because this quote from Isaiah seems to be the official withdrawal of the kingdom. When Jesus says, I'm going to have their their heart, they're hardly here with their eyes. They've closed their their ears. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and I would heal them. The offer of the kingdom is withdrawn. And so in the Gospels, we see an offer of the kingdom that is rejected, and that offer is withdrawn. But then we go to the book of Acts, and we see another... Uh, offer of the kingdom. Look what it says in Acts chapter 3, and I'm going to see if I can read this. It should be on my notes, but it's not, and so I'm going to walk over to the screen with my squinty eyes. Repent then, Peter says in, in Acts 3. Listen to what he says. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. Listen, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. In the, in the context, 
The times of refreshing are those things promised by the prophets. In other words, if you come to Jesus right now, the promises of the prophets are going to be fulfilled. The millennial kingdom's going to come. Christ is going to come back. Turn to him now. Christ comes back. The kingdom starts. It's all yours on a plate. But of course they don't, right? So that when we get to the end of the book of Acts, we read this when they come to see Paul. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said this through Isaiah the prophet. Go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. Sound familiar? For this people's hearts have become callous. They hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Now we have the second withdrawal of the kingdom. That was somewhere between 66 and 68 A.D. And we know what happened in 70 A.D. The king sent his army and burned their city and killed those murderers just like he said in Matthew 22. And the book of Acts says this at the very end, there I want, therefore I want you to know God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, those who have not been invited, and they will hear. And of course, that's exactly what's happened. Now we have what is known as the church. And because of the election of God, we have a remnant of Israel in the church. Praise God for that. But most people that come to Christ are of the Gentiles. Because the offer has been withdrawn. Those not invited right now are coming to the feast. The feast isn't here yet, but we've accepted the invitation. But one day, the age of the church is going to end with the rapture of the church. Jesus will return for his own. We will meet him in the air, and we will be with him forever. And then after that, God will unleash a time on this world that, like it is never seen before or ever will see again. And this time, known in the prophet Jeremiah as the time of trouble for Jacob, has two purposes. One is to punish an unbelieving world, but the other is to bring about the repentance of the nation of Israel. We read this in Zechariah 12, what will happen at the end of this period of time. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. By the way, if anybody ever tells you that Jesus, the the, uh, deity of Christ, can't be found in the Old Testament, it can be found right here. They will look on me, says Yahweh, the one whom they have pierced, and they will grieve for him as one grieves for an only son. Well, when this happens, 
The conditions set by Peter in Acts 3, believe in Christ and he'll send back Jesus from heaven and the times of refreshing will come, will come true. Christ will come back. He will set up his kingdom. But before we turn from this topic, there is one more picture that needs to be considered. Archaeology has unearthed scrolls that look somewhat like this with seven seals along the outside. And what they found is that these are important legal documents, usually involving inheritance, that can be opened only by the heir and only in the presence of official witnesses. So in Revelation 5, we read, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Verse 5, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep, see the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And as each seal is broken, terrible judgments fall upon the earth. It's almost like the whole police force has come in force to uproot the drug lord and his gang. And when the last seal is opened, the rightful heir of this earth with the title deed in his hand, takes possession of what has belonged to him all along. And so now God's plan is fulfilled. A man is sitting on the throne. Yes, Jesus is God, that is true. But it is as the heir of David sitting on David's throne. It is as a man he rules. One whose allegiance is unquestioned, whose faithfulness to God is from everlasting to everlasting. And you'd think at this point we can put a period here because the story is over, but it isn't. When we look at those that enter the kingdom, we see a couple of different people. We see Old Testament saints. We see tribulation saints that have died. We see the church. These all enter in glorified bodies, no longer procreating, no longer marrying and giving in marriage, no longer able to sin. But we also see those who have trusted Christ that have lived through the tribulation period. These people have bodies just like ours. They're born again. And because the new covenant will be enacted in fullness at that time, they'll receive a new heart and the Holy Spirit will be dwelling them. But they're still going to be just like us. Which means, of course, they're going to be capable of sin, right? Which means that the earth is going to be repopulated by people like our children. Well, I'm sure my parents felt the same way, all right? Which means that they're going to be born with a sin nature, which means they're going to have to come to Christ to be born again, and that some of them will, but many of them won't. Now, you need to understand that the conditions will still be perfect in the millennial kingdom, but that doesn't mean everybody's heart will be perfect. I read this great story of um, a salesman who was going to have a sales uh, party with uh, the other traveling salesmen of his organization back um, in the 20s. Uh, and it was uh, in New York. And so he ran down to get on the ferry to go to the island where the sales meeting was going to be. Only he got on the wrong ferry, and he got on a ferry with a bunch of Methodist Sunday school children. <laughs> so they pull off from the, the pier, 
And he tells the guy to turn around and he says, I can't. We've already left. And he starts to swear and the captain says to him, you can't swear like that in front of these children. So he pulls out a cigar and he starts to, you can't smoke in front of these children. So he grabs his hip flask and he pulls it out. You can't drink in front of these children. And so all day long, the sinful tendencies of this salesman were kept restrained by the authorities, but not because he liked it. And when the end of the day came and they came back into the ferry, he was the first one off the ferry. That's the way it's going to be for a lot of people in the millennial kingdom. Oh, yes, outwardly they will be restrained, but inwardly they will chafe because of that righteousness. So much so that there's going to be a worldwide rebellion. Satan will be loosed from his prison. He will go forth to deceive the nations and the nations will together, the kings of this earth will once again take their stand against the Lord and his anointed one. And like ants marching around the globe, they are going to come up and they are going to surround the city of Jerusalem, the city that God loves And fire will come from his mouth and he'll destroy them. And fire will destroy the whole earth. The heavens will disappear with a roar and the elements will melt in a fervent heat and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare and then we'll have a new home of righteousness. And at that point, the end will come. When Jesus turns hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, from his rest reign, and he puts all nations under his feet. Now, there it is, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, God's plan for the ages. But what does it mean that we should do? First of all, we need to recognize that we are expatriates, that this world is not our home. Philippians 1.27 says that whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And yet the word there is a unique word. It's translated walk usually, but still an odd word. It's not the word that we normally translate walk. The word to conduct yourself literally means to live as a citizen. Not live as a citizen of the United States, but live as a citizen of our true home. For you see, I have a passport. I have a passport for a kingdom that is coming. Every year I go to Africa and God willing it, if he makes me stronger, I'm going again this year. I go to Africa, I go to Burundi, I go to the Democratic Republic of Congo. This year I'll be going to Kenya. I teach pastors and I... And we teach all those who will listen. We hold evangelistic meetings. But while I'm there, I still hold a passport to the United States. I'm not living in my kingdom because I'm separated from my kingdom by distance. But that doesn't change where I'm a citizen. My passport's still in the United States, even though I'm separated by distance. But it is more real that I have a passport for the kingdom that is coming. It is a real passport. It is my true home. It's true that I'm separated not by distance, but by time. But that doesn't change where I am a citizen. 
which means just like I'm in Burundi and I need a translator, I speak a different language. And I have a different currency. And we have a different culture. And I have a different sovereign. And Paul says we should live like that right now. And if we're not, then we're forgetting where our allegiance lies. I think it's time that we start carrying our passport a little more openly, don't you? Well, I don't know when this is supposed to end. I asked Robbie and he handed me a calendar. I don't know what that meant. So, <laughs> But I'll entertain questions at this time if anybody has any. Please, please, we'll continue when this ovation has died down. Good timing. Ended right on time. Did I really? Yeah, you left. Well, you and you, you have till 4.30, and you left 12 minutes for question and answer. You, that shows that you are a man who has great courage. <laughs> or a little sense. <laughs> You can always tell the ones who don't want to hear any questions because they go right to the end where they there's no time for questions. Okay, who has questions for Dr. Baker? Okay, Andy. I'm going to pull up this, this stool. I don't know if they can still see me, but I'm kind of wore out now, so I'm going to sit down. All right? Yeah. First of all, thank you. That was one of the best overviews I think I've ever seen oh, from Genesis heart. to Revelation. Um, my question is something you really didn't touch on, but I'm going to ask oh, it. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm going to ask it anyway. There's all. It's from the apocalypse. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, there's there's. Uh, it relates to the end and to the eternal state. There's all this discussion going on now about, uh, you know, is the eternal state a, a renovation or an ex nihilo creation? You know, Revelation 21 and 22. Mm-hmm. And I was curious if you had any thoughts on that. I think it's a, a, a resurrection of the earth. I think it is a, a just as we receive a new body that the earth is renovated. I don't see any ex nihilo in that at all. I, I don't know who makes that claim, so I, I can't make any um, comment of their scholarship or anything. This is the first I've actually heard of that. But um, it seems clear to me that this is – and the reason I believe this is because – you know, one of my my favorite trick questions at ordination councils is, how long is the kingdom? And inevitably, the eager young man will say, a thousand years. And I'll go, oh, really, being smug and sinful? And I'll turn to Daniel, and uh, we'll read in Daniel 7, where the kingdom, uh, where the Son of Man receives a kingdom that will never end. And so the kingdom doesn't end. The kingdom, there is a, uh, at the end of the millennial kingdom, there is a rebellion, but the king is never overthrown. Now, there is a change in state. Uh, it appears in second, uh, or excuse me, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 that it moves from just the reign of Christ into a more of a Trinitarian rule is the way I take that. But clearly the king is a king that has not been dethroned because his king is an eternal dominion that will never end, according to Daniel 7. And because of that, I don't see it changing. I mean, the earth changes, but I don't see an ex nihilo in that because it's still the same kingdom. Does that make sense? Okay, good, good question. 
Now, do you think they, and it escapes me now, but in Isaiah, late Isaiah 58, 59, 60, somewhere in there, talks about a new heaven and new earth, and it's describing the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The, when, you, when you get into the last part of Isaiah, you have to read with particular care because there's a blending uh, between the eternal state and the kingdom, just as there is between the first and second advents of Christ. Okay, you, you, when you read Isaiah, you know, you move from one to the other seamlessly. So you're moving from the millennial kingdom to the eternal uh, kingdom or eternal state seamlessly. And so I don't think it has anything to do with their um, ontological state or their state of being. But um, but I, I think that that's just the way he's writing, the way it was revealed. That was a seamless answer. See, thank you. <laughs> Any other questions? Any questions over here? Just a technical question on that timeline PowerPoint. Is that available? Is that something you put together? Is that available um, anywhere? Well, let me tell you how I put it together because I always have people that, that like doing uh, PowerPoint and Keynote, and they ask me how I did that. That's actually um, – I think I could give that away. I, I, not that I don't want to. I, I just don't know if I'm able to because I used a third-party application called – it's right on the tip of my tongue. Really. I forget what it's called. Um, but, it, but it makes timelines so that you can move. And what it does is it, it breaks it up, the animation, into separate little individual movies. And so it just plays that little movie as I go between one to the other. I have no problem giving it away. Uh, I can email it to you, and you can put it up on the website if you want. I just don't know if anybody will be able to open it. Okay. Well, that would be great. We'd also like to know what that third-party app is because we could well, use it. Well, let me that, tell you what it is. I can tell you what it is. That would be cool to use for different things. Timeline 3D is what it's called. Timeline, Timeline 3D. Timeline 3D. My, write, that, write that down, please. Uh, mapsofwar.com. Maps, maps of, of war. war. Let me give you the exact. Uh, let me go there uh, real quick and see if I can find it. It is. Come on, show my. Maps-of-war.com. Maps-of-war.com. Uh, that was right on the homepage when I went and got it. Oh, Timeline 3D. Mm-hmm. And that's really... That's I'm going to really have to write them and tell them that I, I gave them a plug and everybody's going to buy it now and give me a cutback or something. Yeah, and, and, and as you watch the little timeline, notice that there's, that there's no Palestinian... Country or, you know, that's an important observation that 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 you need to have there. There's no Palestinian country or nation or. Yes. Anybody empire. have any questions concerning what I actually talked about? <laughs> Just asking. Yeah, thanks, Ian. You're a real pal, Andy. Thanks, brother. Do you have any thoughts as to the? No, I have no thoughts. I'm sorry. I should wait till you get done, shouldn't I? Go ahead. The uh, the Maccabean era, the Hasmonean uh, dynasty, in terms of the defiance of the promise to return the throne to the line of David, and the idea of exalting a kingship from the priestly line rather than uh, yeah, they were in rebellion against God. Right. Okay. I mean, that, I don't know what else to say um, other than first of all, they weren't obeying the law. 
because the law says that the king comes from Judah. That's the whole argument, by the way, in, uh, what is it, Hebrews 8, where Jesus obviously has to be a king in the order of Melchizedek. Why? Because if he was a king from the Davidic, he couldn't be a priest at the same time. Okay, because the priest, the high priest comes from the tribe of Levi, whereas the king comes from the line of Judah. So he has to have a new priestly order in the line of Melchizedek in order to be a priest from the line of Judah. That's the whole idea there. Well, in the Maccabeans, they were trying to subvert that. Uh, They were ignoring uh, Ezekiel's uh, prophecy about not having a king, and then they were trying to set one up uh, that was not in accordance with the law. So there's no way that you can give any kind of blessing to that at all. Any other questions? We've got time. Okay. It's like a vestigial tail here. I can't. Okay. All right. Thank you for your presentation. Um, I just had one question. How would you respond to someone's question about the offer of the kingdom during Jesus' ministry? And then again, as you pointed out, a second offer of the kingdom in Acts chapter 3, in light of Daniel 9 and the necessity of that 70th week? Um, Of course, this is just uh, speculation on my part because it didn't happen that way. But I think what would happen is this. Because that 70th week had to happen, that if they had accepted Jesus as the Messiah that he would have ascended into heaven, that 70th week would have happened, and then he would have returned. Because it's important, you see, um, uh, for the nations of this world to be punished. We kind of see this in the, in the dispensational scheme of things. Remember, a dispensation is a, dis- a discernible economy in the outworking of the plan of God. And in every dispensation, you've got some responsibility man fails that responsibility there is judgment and then they move on to the new um to the new dispensation so in the first dispensation the responsibility don't eat of the tree they fail death removal from the garden pain in childbirth and painful toil then we go into the area uh, the dispensation of conscience respond to god according to conscience they fail um, and so it brings about um, uh, the flood. And then we go into a new dispensation, the dispensation of human government. Um, the responsibility, um, scatter over the whole earth. Do they do it? No. So you have the judgment at Babel. And we go into the next one. Then we go into promise. Stay in the promised land, live according to God. But do they do that? No. Every time you turn around, they're fleeing outside the promised land. So God says, you like Egypt so much? Fine. Go to Egypt. And the Egyptian captivity is the judgment. God delivers them. They come to the law. Everything that the Lord says, we will do. But do they? Of course not. And so what happens? Well, God sends his Messiah. Do they accept him? No. Then he gives them another offer of the kingdom. Do they accept that? No. So what happens? There is uh, the diaspora, the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, The time of the Gentiles continues. We have the church as a parenthesis there. The church, by the way, what's our job? Go into all nations 
uh, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. The modern missionary movement, which is sputtering to a halt, I might add, is only about 150, 200 years old. You know, the, the, the church has done a terrible job of that. When the rapture of the church comes, we're going to see the real judgment at the end of the law, which is the tribulation period. That had to happen. So how that would have worked in, I don't know. But it had to happen because prophecy can't be broken. Did I answer your question? Okay. Seamlessly. I'm not the only one who keeps talking when you're answering questions. That's why we're we're good friends. We are very similar. You almost quoted me in your answer because I kept getting that when I went through Acts was how can you deal with this 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 second offer of the kingdom? Is that real or whatever? And that was almost identical to what I said. Man. So, well, no, I'm the one who's going, because I, I, I mean, you, you've been living in this dispensational doctoral program for so long. I'm just glad that I, I guess. Of right. course you are. I am. <laughs> okay. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer, and then we'll have our, our dinner break. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for uh, Bruce's presentation, a good capture overview for us to think in terms of the big picture. Uh, we continue to pray, uh, pray for him. Father, one other prayer request is uh, one, uh, one who is a dear friend of many of us here is continuing to have some uh, significant health problems, Gene Brown, and um, we just pray for him, for wisdom for the doctors in treating the lung uh, disease that he has, and pray that he might uh, be able to uh, recover in the next few days and that you would just comfort him as well. And now, Father, we just pray for us that as we travel to rest or to eat, to fellowship, that you'll keep us safe on the roads and that uh, we will have a nice time to relax a little bit before we come back for the evening message. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And for those live streaming, uh, Bruce, thought uh, this was a good announcement. And those who are responsible for jotting ideas down, as we ought to note on the uh, Bryce we ought to note on the website that, that, that when we have our evening service, 7.30 to 9-ish, that the speaker is up from about 8 to 9-ish. Okay. See you all tonight. <laughs>